This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, so so it's Joey doesn't like it. It's not, this is a badly designed card. It's a bad dog. <laughs> okay, now that we've cleared that up. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the Speedster, whose article series takes you from 60 to 100. It's Matt Morgan. Joey, have you heard of what they have in Japan instead of alphabet soup? Uh, no. What do they have instead of alphabet soup? They call it Times New Ramen. Times? <laughs> that, that doesn't make any sense like alphabet soup to ramen like it's a font joke out of nowhere come on yes typography joke technically it's a typography joke we're we're absolutely done here (laughs) next the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins it's dana roach and just for you joey i will be known as dana god of popular commanders (gasps) dana that warms my heart to hear i'm sure that theros will bring you some type of popular commander that you might be able to sink your hooks into i'm sure that you'll have a blast brewing something popular for one time in your life it will be an absolute (laughs) treat whenever you finally get out of your hipster ways and i'm joey schultz author of the commander showdown series all these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com along with some awesome featured community content such as other commander podcasts and gameplay videos edhrec itself is a fantastic deck building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the cast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. What is our topic this week, fellas? We're going to talk about minor upgrades to playing EDH. That is right. This is sort of the season where everyone's making new resolutions, like the one that you just mentioned, Dana, where I challenged you to have a uh, a New Year's resolution to build something popular, but also just sort of in general, people are making different types of resolutions about habits that they want to change in their regular lives. And there are tiny habits that we also wanted to mention about how to improve our gameplay, too. Since this is the seasons of rev- uh, resolutions, 
it's just kind of useful, I think, to acknowledge that sometimes a big commitment isn't always realistic or isn't the best way to actually achieve that resolution. It's useful to nudge yourself in minor ways to help out because sometimes the minor details are actually the things that help you achieve those resolutions. You know, it's easier to do the little things than one big thing, you know, on January 1st, I guess I would say that we think of that as turn one, and if you play something like an ill-gotten inheritance, then maybe you'll only deal one damage each turn, and that doesn't sound as great as one huge torment of hailfire, but over the course of the year and the 365 other turns, or I guess 364 other turns, you'll get more done with the minor damage than you will with just one tiny spell. So that's what we want to talk about here in terms of magic. Tiny things that we can do to increase uh, you know, the win percentage in our game and get a little bit of extra edges that will help us emerge victorious in more games as the year goes on to help out our resolutions. But before we get there, I have to mention I played one of the absolute craziest games that I think I've ever played with my Yannette deck that I, I, I just genuinely have to stop and talk about this with you guys. Because Yannette, the Sphinx that casts things for free when she attacks, if they have an odd mana cost, she just flips the top card. That's a deck where I have to spend, like, a good majority of the cards in that deck are all about setting up the top card. You know, I use Brainstorm to put something on top so that Yannette can play it for free. I use a Tutor to put something on top. I use Aminatu to put something on top so I can get those for free. And it takes a lot of work to get something, because otherwise I'm just flipping blind, right? You know, I might just flip a land, and that's not nearly as good as flipping, like, an Emrakul. I had the most stunning game with that deck in the world off of absolute blind luck because I am not joking to you when I say that I flipped an Expropriate, a Void Winnower, and an Elish Norn all in sequence without having set up my top deck once at all. I don't think I've ever been that lucky in my entire life. Ever. It was bonkers. I mean, you named three very not nice cards, so getting to resolve those three cards in one game of Commander, that alone is kind of an accomplishment. So props to you for that. But then, yes, <laughs> completely luck-sacking into that, I I am impressed. I, I, will, I will give and, and credit I, where it's due. And, and the story didn't end with him getting punched. <laughs> which is probably in and of itself kind of a win. Well, so here's the thing. I played a lot of, lot of magic that evening and I ran into a very upsetting uh, moment. I, uh, I played a different game where someone had a Sovereigns of Lost Alara card in play and their regression was focused elsewhere. Sovereigns of Lost Alara, for those who don't know, is this exalted card from, you know, the Alara block from ages ago. And it lets people get enchantments from their deck and it's really powerful. This particular person had run out a lot of the good enchantments um, in their deck, so they weren't able to fetch too much with it, but I was unable, or at least I perceived myself to be unable to attack that person with any of my uh, my small flying creatures because they had this, you know, cloud thing in play, this spirit that I was like, oh, I can't attack them. I would really be able to take them out of the game if only I could attack them, but they've got the Sovereigns of Lost Alara thing in play. Well, it turns out, after the game, they sort of sidled the card over to me and said, hey, Joey, you know that Sovereigns of Lost Alara doesn't have flying, right? So I had to read the card and see, yeah, it's got this exalted ability, it's got this enchantment fetching ability, but these clouds do not have flying. This card does not have flying, despite <laughs> depicting clouds. So I got, I was so like, what, what is this? I don't understand. And I'm still kind of like reeling from it because I'm also, not only am I upset about the fact that this card that depicts clouds does not have flying with the clouds, but I'm also realizing that I have suddenly become an old man yelling at a cloud. I have memed <laughs> myself. And it's, mm. I don't know what to do with that information as we head into 2020. <laughs> well, Joey, if it makes you feel better, last week I was looking at Sovereigns of Lost Alara for a deck I was putting together. 
And the only reason I wasn't cutting it for the longest time was I kept thinking, yeah, but it has evasion. It's so maybe I want to keep it around anyway. <laughs> and it made like three rounds of cuts for that exact same reason, because I thought it had flying. EDH Retcast, where old man yells at cloud. Right. <laughs> I, oh man, it just, it absolutely flummoxed me. That's absolutely fun. But hey, we can't just talk about past cards. We also want to take a very brief moment to talk about the fact that this right now is Theros Beyond Death preview season, and we've been getting a trickle of awesome previews throughout the course of the week. We're recording on Monday, so we've only seen a few of the cards at the moment, whereas, you know, by Friday, people have seen certainly a lot more. But while we're here, before we get to our main topic, are there any specific cards that you guys have seen previewed from Theros Beyond Death that you want to take a brief moment to mention that have you really excited for how they will impact Commander. Matt, let's start with you. So, I mean, immediately the new Perforos came out this afternoon and I, oh buddy, I got so excited. It's it's sneak attack in the command zone and it's not quite sneak attack, but for mono red, all those purposes, it's sneak attack. So put, <laughs> it's just sneak attack the Ilarg the Rage Boar, which that's another creature that's kind of, you know, whenever it attacks, you can put a creature from your hand on the battlefield attacking. So you just get a lot of power really fast and it's really gnarly and it's not probably not as accidentally powerful as Perforos's first iteration was, but this is pretty dang close. Yeah, Perforos Bronze Blooded, which is just a good name, by the way. So five mana yeah. legendary enchantment creature god. He's got indestructible and the same devotion clause as the previous gods from Theros, as long as your devotion to red is less than five. Perforos is not a creature. He's a seven six, so when he does become a creature, that is a smashy number right there. He gives all of your creatures haste, and then you can also pay two and a red to put a red creature card or an artifact creature card from your hand onto the battlefield and you sacrifice it at the beginning of the next end step. I can totally see why you're excited for this. That is a spicy ability. Yeah, totally. It, it, it's it's one of those... It's, it's also... It's not a tap ability either, so it's one that you can use and presumably will be attempting to use multiple times a turn. Absolutely. Oh, true. Yeah. It, it, the, the challenge that you had for me, Joey, was to build a cheaty face type of deck. This immediately got my attention. So yeah. it is on my radar. I may be trying to cheat and do some unfair things, maybe with the Rumble Pig. Who knows? I absolutely adore it. Dana, how about you? What card has caught your attention from the new Theros set? Uh, the one that really jumped out at me was Nyx Lotus, which is the four mana legendary artifact. Um, it's basically the mana rock version of Nyxthos trying to Nyx. It comes into play tapped, which is a huge downside, though. Um, and it's four mana. Um, I think people have been maybe a little bit overrating this. Um, four mana is a pretty rough spot to be at for a mana rock, and it's one that you can't use for the next turn anyway. Um, yeah, there's plenty of decks where it's going to come down and, you know, on the next turn tap for four mana or five mana or something, but um, Gilded Lotus always taps for three mana on the same turn since it, you know, it's cost one more to cast, but it comes into play untapped. Um I, I like it, and I think it's decent, but I also think you're going to see that show up in a lot of decks where people think it's maybe more effective than it is. I think that's fair. Tapping for mana equal to your devotion to a certain color does look powerful since we know that Nykthos can do that. I think that, you know, if you've got a commander that has, like, the triple pips or something like that, I'm thinking along the lines of Mikaeus or something like that, they've got triple pips, and that really is a strong contender because you have more regular access to that consistent devotion. But I have noticed in some of my personal monocolor decks that sometimes my Nykthos is a little bit dead, so I can totally see why you're maybe a little bit skeptical about this one. You know, one of the nice things about Mana Rocks is that they help you rebuild if your board has been wiped away. 
So if your board has been wiped away, this particular mana rock doesn't help you at all, which is kind of a little bit sketchy. On the other hand, it helps you out a lot when you're doing really well. Right. So yeah, I can yeah. totally see why you're sort of giving it you know, a little bit of skepticism, which I hope is a, a healthy amount of it because it does look really intriguing for sure. I think it's going to end up being a little more towards Gilded Lotus territory where it's it's yes. good, but it's – I think a lot of people that are freaking out about it, you know, going infinite so easily, like like you guys said, it, it requires a decent board state to do that, requires specific color combinations. So I'm not near as scared of it as a lot of people seem to be. I think it will be fine and like – sure, there will absolutely be insane plays, but I, I agree with Dana. The, the, the temper. It's one of those cards where if you have a board state to really abuse it, then a lot of cards are broken at that point. Yeah. So yeah. I, it, it's it's neat. Um, I, th- I think Nykthos originally was probably slightly too powerful for as easy as it was to use. This is probably overcorrecting a little bit, but I do still like it in some decks. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. Here's here's though. So my particular pick uh, for just a card that I want to briefly mention. Here, here's a card I don't like. This uh, guys, I don't. <laughs> they made wizards finally did it. They made a bad dog. They made a bad <laughs> doggo. Like Moo is the best boy. He's absolutely he's a good dog. But they made a bad dog. This is Kunaros Hound of Athreos. This is a three mana three three hound in Orzov colors with vigilance menace and lifelink. And it says that creature cards in graveyards can't enter the battlefield, and players can't cast spells from graveyards. Why? Why they do this? <laughs> Dogs you that know eat your why. homework are nicer than this. What? Why? You know why, Joey. Because of people like me, but uh, there's, there's a very big inner conflict because I love dogs, but I don't like this dog. This is bad dog. Well, I, I think it's funny. A lot of people were saying, oh, it's it's ha- having rest in peace in your command zone. And I think that's that's inaccurate. It's more of a more of a graph doggo's cage than it is a rough in peace. <laughs> a rough in peace. Stop it. But it, but uh. it is it is graph digger's cage. Pardon my my wordplay where. It, Graph Digger's Cage has those exact abilities. Creature cards and graveyards can't enter the battlefield, along with a library, so it's a little short there. But also, players can't cast spells from graveyards. So, Graph Doggo's Cage, that, that's Kunoros. It's, it's official. I am so stunned that I may not be able con- to uh, continue with the rest of the show, but we must press on despite Matt's expert punnery. We are going to move now into our main topic, which is about minor upgrades. Once again, these are just tiny things that we think can help improve people's games over a course of a long time. And there are also quite a few sort of common knowledge things, some basic lessons, stuff that magic players usually learn pretty early on. So we're actually going to start with those before we get to some others that we think are maybe a bit more commander specific. So we just want to remind ourselves about the types of little things that give us an extra edge in gameplay that you usually learn pretty early on in your magic career. Let's start off with our first lesson here. Dana, I'm going to hand this off to you. What is our first basic lesson that helps people get an extra edge in magic? So the first lesson is leaving up diverse mana. And what we mean by that is if you have the opportunity during your first main phase or second main phase, whatever it is, to cast a spell that costs two blue, you probably want to use your two islands to cast that spell and then leave your um, tundra and your command tower untapped. Number one, that way you have the most options available, you know, during your second main or during someone else's turn to either cast a counter spell or to cast that naturalize or to cast that sorts of plowshares or, or, or whatever it's going to be, depending on the, the colors you're playing. 
you also can kind of bluff people a little bit. If someone sees you have two islands up, they tend to immediately jump to the conclusion that you have a counterspell. If you have that tundra and a command tower there, they're much less likely to mentally assume that that's a, that, that counter is there and maybe play into something that you want them to play into. Or just they might not be able to assume explicitly that you have the counterspell, right. but they might also be like, oh, maybe they actually have a swords to plowshares as well. Whereas if you only left up the two islands, then they wouldn't have to fear a swords at all. So that does give you a little bit of, of ability to bluff a bit there when you leave up that diverse mana. That's a thing that people tend to learn pretty on. And sort of related to this, I think, is the concept of leaving open your fetch lands. That's a really good habit that a lot of us have learned to leave up our fetch lands because it means that opponents don't know what type of mana we're about to go fetch. Are they going to go get a water grave or are they going to go get a breeding pool? And if they don't know what you're getting or whether it's going to be untapped or tapped, they have less information to be able to use. So this is just one of those easy lessons that people uh, sort of pick up early on that can really help you get an extra edge in the game that's always important to keep in mind. Another one here, though, is also to make sure that you watch your opponent's mana. Matt, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so just as much as we talk about make sure you're not signaling to other people, look for what other people are signaling at the same time. If somebody has, you know, one blue but then a bunch of other mana, maybe they have Cyclonic Rift in hand. Count up their their land, see what they have untapped. Maybe they have exactly one plane, so it could be that, that Path to Exile or Two Swamps. It could be a kill spell. As much as we were saying... Make sure you're tapping, you know, tap your basics first. That's one of the the very early lessons I learned was use your basics first and leave your multicolor mana up as long as possible because that will help disguise it. See if other people aren't doing that. Maybe they have exactly, you know, a, a swamp and a forest. Do they have a Golgari charm or a heroic intervention? Anything like that. Keep an eye out for what they're doing before you make your moves as well. So don't just signal or don't just look for what you might be signaling, but look for what other people could be signaling as well. And sometimes you also want to do the opposite of that, and you want to send a signal. Sometimes you want the person to see that you have mana available for a counterspell. So while it makes sense to leave more diverse mana up, there are probably situations where you want to either make a power play and like intimidate someone or like let them know you have counterspells in hand or bluff that you have a counterspell and leave those two obvious islands available there that, that signals you have one or leave that seven mana kind of tucked off to the side untapped to make them think you have a rift in hand. There's times when the opposite does make sense. Yeah, I, I've done that several times where somebody's attacked me and I have seven or eight blue mana just sitting there and somebody will go to attack me and I'll just look at them and just, are you, are you, are you sure? Do you really want to do that? And they'll, they'll deadpan for a second. No, I really don't. So yes, <laughs> bluffing is, is very real people. Yeah, that's a big part of the game. And that's just the kind of thing that's important about but this particular lesson is that using the mana in this way doesn't necessarily cost you anything extra. By being just a little bit more careful or more attentive to the way that you're tapping your mana, you might be able to get an extra edge on your opponents by forcing them to think a certain way or by making them suspicious of a certain play or just at least leaving them guessing. And all that you have to do is, you know, leave more diverse mana up instead. That way, you know, if you're just thoughtlessly tapping your lanes, maybe you might miss out on that value when you actually want to be able to threaten a counterspell or a swords to plowshares, that type of thing. It doesn't cost you anything extra, but it's a minor way that you can get a little bit of extra edge by maybe playing a little bit of mind games with your opponents. Our next lesson that we want to get onto is simply attacking before you cast spells. 
This is a really big one that I see, especially in 1v1 magic. Casting spells on main phase one gives away information to your opponents that they'll be able to use to help evaluate how they react during combat. You know, the classic example is because of combat trick cards, which aren't as popular in EDH, but are a little bit more popular in, you know, formats like limited, for example. If you play your creature on your first main phase and then you attack, your opponents now know well, the the one opponent in the limited example, they know that you don't have any special tricks that could mess up combat for them, so they'll be able to block more optimally. But if you leave the mana open and you play your creature in the second main phase, your opponent has to struggle with the potential that maybe you do have a nasty combat trick in your hand, and they might make a less optimal decision as a result. It doesn't cost you anything, but it is a really important lesson that you know we learn pretty early in Magic that costs us nothing at all, but can give us a bit of an extra edge by maybe giving our opponent the chance to make a big mistake yeah and like with the 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 signal thing though there are also situations where maybe you do want to do something on that main phase either to send the signal or to change you know math if there's a creature that gives a buff or something you obviously want to get that in play Uh, one of the things about about most of these rules is you also need to know when to not follow them and when (laughs) it doesn't make sense right um I had this conversation with with my son actually right after Christmas. It was a day after Christmas and he wanted to play Pokemon Sword all day long. And after like two hours of playing, he's like, you know, hey, dad, can I play a little bit longer? I know I've been playing for two hours. And I I said to him, you know, all things in moderation, including moderation. It's a day after Christmas. If you want to play Pokemon all day today, (laughs) you can do it all day today. Like there are times when it's absolutely okay to break the rules and with all of these rules we'll be talking about, there's also times where you need to think through whether or not it makes sense and there's a logical reason to not follow it. Yeah, Yeah. excellent observation. Matt, what is our third lesson? So the big one, for me at least, that I know I fall victim to, don't overcommit to the board. Make sure if you play out your whole hand, but you know somebody is playing a control deck, for example, they have a lot of board wipes, you you want to make sure you're playing around that. Don't play out you know, all seven of your cards that are all creatures onto the battlefield and then turn four comes around and they just play Wrath of God because that's pretty hard to recover from. Want to make sure that if you know somebody's playing, you know, a, like we said, a control deck or something that just plays a lot of board wipes in general or just an aristocrats deck, those are some decks that you need to play around and kind of navigate your board state. Good magic players, that whether or not they need to play two extra cards now, if they want to know if they're on the beatdown plan, that's something that you'll hear a lot of players talk about is who's the beatdown, who is supposed to be the aggressor in a matchup or in a given pot if you're in commander. If you have 20 damage in play, do you really need to play something that's not going to be able to attack and, and contribute for another turn or two? Weigh out those options. See if you have enough on the board to establish, you know, get, draw out that Wrath of God because once you play a Wrath of, once the opponents get that Wrath of God out of their hand, maybe you follow that up with a Tender Shoot Dryad afterwards and it helps you reestablish your board all that much quicker. So learning what to play around, when to hold back, when to go all in, that's one lesson that I've had to learn many, many times and it never seems to stick. But for your sake, listeners, please learn it sooner than I have. <laughs> I love the Tender Shoot Dryad example because that is a card that all on its own can completely rebuild your board. So if you already have a big board, maybe you don't need to play it to create an even bigger board because it would actually be really good to help you reestablish in the event that everything goes wrong. Another big example for me would probably be Voltron decks, especially ones that use auras or equipment. You know, if your Voltron dies, then all of your auras go away. 
But maybe you don't actually need to play those auras. You don't need to deploy them up until they, you know, influence the math a bit more uh, importantly in terms of your commander's clock. You know, commander damage is really great, but there are some specific numbers that sort of matter to commander damage. You know, the number seven, if you can deal seven damage with your commander, that means that you can take someone out in three attacks, seven, 14, and 21. If your commander has 11 power, then you can take them out in just two attacks, you know, 11 and then 22, you've got them out with commander damage. Or if you've actually just got a 21 power commander. But playing any extra auras in between those numbers, you know, an aura that takes you from 11 power on your commander to just 14, that doesn't change the clock. So maybe it's actually an aura that you could reserve and keep in your hand, you know, rather than over committing to help you out in case your Voltron goes away and then you need to be able to reestablish by playing them again later and then powering them up to those big numbers too. That's another really big example for the over committing thing for me as it happens to EDH. Not over committing is a huge one to make sure that you are still in the game even in case things go badly. And I don't have the math on you right now, but I, but I've looked it up before. If you figure every person is running maybe three board wipes on average, or you know the equivalent thereof, whether it's rift or whatever, you know you start the game with seven cards in hand. But by the time you get to turn four, someone's seen eleven. They're already you know what thirteen percent of the way through their deck. If they have three board wipes and you have three opponents, there's a pretty decent chance someone's drawn one. So if you overextend and you're the first person to do it and you're not someone who's holding a heroic intervention or Teferi's protection, there's a good chance you are going to eat that board wipe when you overextend. Like mathematically, it's just a bad idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, we are going to move on to our final lesson that a lot of Magic players are familiar with, but that we want to make sure that we remind ourselves about. And that is simply the adage that you should use as much of your mana as possible. You know, if it's your turn and you have four mana and you have the choice to play a four mana spell or a three mana spell, you should usually use as much of your mana as possible and cast that four mana spell. Because next turn, you might, for example, draw a one mana spell, and then you could cast both the three drop and the one drop. There are plenty of cases where the effect of the lower cost card might actually be more beneficial right now than the more expensive spell, but just like generally speaking, using up all of your mana tends to be the right play because then you're not losing out on any of your resources. This is just an extra way that can sort of help you get an extra edge by giving you a bit more flexibility in later turns by using up all of your mana when you have it. That is a tiny thing that has made a big difference for me in games of limited especially, and I think it's also going to be true of Commander. I mean, I've made this argument about using your life total as a resource, but it, it applies to mana as well. Um, you know, if you are a race car driver, any extra fuel you have in the tank when you cross that line to win the race is extra weight you've been dragging around the track during the course of that entire race. So perfectly, you want to cross that finish line exactly as you're out of gas. That applies to your life total to a degree, although, you know, no one's going to exactly win at one every time. But it applies to your mana pool as well. If you're not using that gas up during the race, it's extra weight you're dragging around for no reason. Yeah. yeah. And, and and we compare, or at least I have compared on the podcast a few times, 60 card formats is about resource management. Commander more is resource accumulation. So the more mana you spend, like Joey said, the more resources you are going to have in the long run. And, and Limited Resources is an excellent podcast if you want to get better at playing the limited format. They say all the time, the person who in a limited game spends the most mana in the first five turns usually ends up winning. That does apply to a certain extent to Commander games as well. They like to spend as much mana as possible, establish a board, don't overcommit, like we said, but make sure you're spending as much mana every turn as you can, and that will set you up better to long-term be successful. 
Yeah, exactly. And like Dana and Matt have mentioned previously, there are exceptions to a lot of these simple, uh, you know, heuristics. Sometimes, like they mentioned, you want to leave up blue mana to make sure your opponents think you have a counterspell. Or there are plenty of spells that you want to play before you attack. You know, an overwhelming stampede isn't nearly as good on main phase two as it is on main phase one. (laughs) But in general, these lessons are good heuristics that players tend to pick up that help them give, uh, that, that help them get an extra advantage in the game. These tricks that you're that give your opponents a chance to misplay with very little additional cost to you. So they can help add up extra value over the course of lots of games and you get a ton of value from that. Those are just some lessons that you pick up from games of maybe 1v1 magic, but now we want to get into a couple of lessons that we have for specifically games of Commander. These are a few tips and tricks that we've been using to help improve our gameplay, specifically in the context of Commander, just minor things that sometimes give us an extra edge. And I want to start off with one that I really like, and my first lesson here is tapping your artifact mana first. If, for example, I have a Felwar Stone or a Signet or a Talisman or even a Gilded Lotus, I like to tap them before I use my lands, especially multicolored lands, because we get Rogue Bane of Progress and Rogue Vandal Blasts and random Decimates or Pernicious Deeds all over the Commander format. So if I'm trying to leave my mana open for an instant, I don't want to be totally blown out by an out-of-nowhere artifact removal spell, even one that wasn't purposely trying to hit my artifacts, just maybe hit all artifacts. I don't want to get blown out by that. You know, if I've got some spells in my hand, I'd like to be able to still, you know, cast them later on. If I had left my regular mana on my lands open and not my artifacts, then I would still be fine. But if I didn't, you know, do that, if I had tapped my regular land mana and then my artifact mana was up and then someone cast a Bane of Progress, I'm forced in that moment to decide whether I'm going to use that mana or lose that mana. And that can be a little tricky. So just tapping your artifact mana first is a helpful thing that I have been able to use to sort of Uh, help me get an extra edge to increase the amount of decisions that I have in a game. And really quick, no, I'm not talking about treasure because treasure is a one-time use. (laughs) Y'all know what I mean. But yeah, that is a lesson that I've picked up that I think has really helped me out in a couple of games where I don't accidentally get blown out by some incidental artifact hate. I can't count the number of times, Joey, that I've seen somebody leave a soul ring up, but then only go to cast a spell and realize they can't tap that soul ring for colored mana, but they cast mm-hmm. several spells that had two colorless mana requirements in there. So they, they've left mana on the table, left spells in their hand because they did exactly what you were talking about. They didn't tap their artifact mana first. They used, they tried to bank a soul ring, but that doesn't go with you. That doesn't transfer from turn to turn. Remember keeping an eye out on what taps for colored mana and what taps for colorless mana That's another kind of build on point that I would add to what you just said. Yeah, and if you need to leave up your artifact mana to leave up the more diverse type of mana, that's totally fair. But in general, if I have a Chromatic Lantern in play, I'm tapping that Chromatic Lantern before I tap any of my other lands because there's always a risk that it might die to something incidental, and I'd like to make sure that my mana is still up to represent other potential instants down the line. All right, we're going to move on to our second more commander-specific tiny uh, improvements lesson. Dana, take it away. Um, this would be to watch for the player who isn't committing to the board state. So if there's a life gain deck and they're uh, they're not casting creature cards and they're usually doing that to gain a bunch of life, why aren't they doing that? Because there's probably a reason they aren't beyond just they forgot to cast creature spells. And that reason is usually a Wrath of God or some <laughs> kind of a board wipe that they have in their hand. So 
that's the kind of like it, it. I guess I would call it almost negative space. It's it's not the things that are happening in the game, but the things that aren't happening, and the things that aren't happening can be a really big clue about what might then happen down the road. Yeah, if you know, if the Enchantress deck isn't currently playing enchantments, that's something notable. Maybe they're setting up for an austere command and they don't want to, you know, lose out on their own enchantments and they want to destroy everyone else's. That's the kind of thing that could really help inform your turn so that you don't get completely blown out. Yeah, and I mean, you would be surprised how often that's a thing that comes up where I have sat at a pod and I've watched somebody not do a thing and I've because I'm watching for it, been consciously aware of it and, and tried to avoid playing into it. And I've watched two other players just obliviously, oh, well, I'm just going to drop a bunch of creatures and then get blown out by that board wipe. Um, it just, it's a regular occurring thing in, in Commander, I think particularly by players who aren't used to Commander and don't play a ton of Commander and are used to playing a format where you just kind of want to go all out. It's absolutely a big thing that I think really requires people to adjust their play style to a different format. Yeah. Noticing what isn't there is a lot harder when you have three opponents to pay attention to rather than just the one. Exactly. All right. Let's move on to our third commander lesson. Matt, what is our third lesson? So our third lesson is learn to sequence your plays. And what we mean by that is what is the order of the cards that you play? Sure, you can play anything in any given order, but what's going to maximize your chances to get a board state out there, to to be successful? So here's kind of what we mean. Now, say in this situation, you have four lands and you have a two drop creature in your hand and you also have a commander sphere. So you have four mana available and then a two mana cost and a three mana cost spell. So if you play your Fauna Shaman or or whatever your two-drop creature is, you're left with just two mana left, but you have that creature in play. If you would have sequenced it just a little bit differently and ordered the the way that you play everything out, you spend three mana on your Commander Sphere, which is a mana rock, so it goes out and you have one mana left, but you just put another mana into play, which means you can then play that two-drop creature that you wanted to play as well. So however you try to sequence things, you want to make sure you're keeping an eye out for the long thing, not just, well, I want to get this into play, and then I want to get this into play, and I want to get this into play. Take a look at what order you are putting everything out there, because a lot of times that will make a great deal of difference in the in any given game. Yeah, that's just the simple example with the mana rocks that probably, you know, looks pretty e- uh, easy to, to notice with something like that. But there are tons of potential triggers, tons of potential missteps or sequencing out of orders in the game of Commander, because this one, this is full of triggers, this format. You know, if you've got the Aetherflux Reservoir and then a bunch of one-mana ponders and preordains, the Aetherflux, re- playing the Aetherflux Reservoir first and then the other spells, you know, means that you gain the life right away off of the re- Reservoir's effect. But if you played it last, you would have gained no life. That's the kind of tiny thing. You know, an opponent who has a painful quandary out and you've got three spells to play and one of them's a disenchant that would kill the painful quandary, you know, playing that first so then your other spells get freed up is probably really important so that you don't lose out on extra value. But those are just tiny examples. They probably sound obvious, but with all of the stuff that's going on in Commander, it can sometimes be tough to pay attention to. So just getting into the habit of trying to sequence those things out can be very, very important, especially when it comes to a four-player game with a bunch of different enchantments and a bunch of different triggers going off all over the place. Well, in one place I've seen this really crop up lately is with the Planeswalkers from War of the Spark that have the passive ability... There's been multiple games I've seen where someone plays that Planeswalker and almost every time you play a Planeswalker, you want to 
take control of that priority to use their ability immediately to get advantage of it. <clears throat> the thing is, with those planeswalkers at the passive, sometimes there are situations where it's not advantageous to use the ability immediately. And keeping track of that sequencing, okay, do I want to use the ability when I know I can successfully do it right now, or is it worth taking the risk doing other things first and then using the plus one or the plus three, whatever it winds up being. And the example for me that crops up is Tezret Master of the Bridge, uh, creatures and planeswalker spells you control have affinity for artifacts, and his plus two, he deals damage to each opponent where X is the number of artifacts you control. The sequence and the decision then becomes, do I want to take advantage of Tezzeret's affinity in an artifact deck to play three or four artifacts from my hand, probably for free, and then use his plus two and get the extra damage? Or is it worth the risk? Is that worth the risk of having someone in response to me casting that free artifact, removing Tezzeret? I yeah. love that. That's a really good example. <laughs> yeah, learning just when to sequence your payoff cards. Dana, that, that's an amazing point. Like, I think that, Joey, you can probably relate is there's been situations where you want to play a gray merchant of Asphodel and you want to play it now and maybe you get, you know, six damage to every player. But are you OK? And do you want to sequence it a little bit differently where you might delay it a little bit where it's a riskier play, but the upside is there? Maybe you you wait a turn or two and your gray merchant hits everybody for 10 or or even more. But on the opposite side of that, it might only be a two mana gray merchant, it might backfire a little bit. So how do you want to sequence your payoffs in order to get the maximum value or what is enough value where it's worth it to stop gambling and, and just call you or, or take your chips from there? Yeah. And the real important thing I think is sequencing these spells, particularly around your commander. I mean, we had a whole episode about how to time your commander and some of them are really hard. For example, let's say you're playing Arcades the Strategist, who makes your defenders into powerful attackers, but also draws you cards when you play defender creatures. In your opening turns, you could play a bunch of defenders, but they don't really do anything. But then you can drop in Arcades, your defenders don't have summoning sickness, so you can start attacking right away. That's really cool, but maybe you would actually prefer to save the defenders in your hand until after Arcades is already in play, because when you're deploying defenders while he's in play, you'd be refueling and drawing more cards and drawing more defenders. If you play all the defenders before you cast Arcades, you might miss out on some of that value train. Sometimes you need Arcades to come in and be the huge blowout by turning your defense into offense, but sometimes you need to provide incremental advantage to sustain you over the course of a long game. Timing your commander, sequencing around your commander, depends on the cards you have to support it, and you can get a lot of extra value by sequencing those correctly and determining when you should cast your commander relative to those cards. That's a really big thing for commander, for sure. Sequencing is a very small improvement, a very tiny thing to be conscious of, but it can get you a lot of extra value and can definitely change the course of a game. All right, we've got one more lesson that we want to spend some time on real quick. Dana, I believe this was yours. Go right ahead and take it away. This was kind of a last minute addition here. Um, don't give away information you don't have to give away. And the two big examples I see of this are asking how many cards are in someone's hand. That sends very clearly the message that you're going to do something that cares with the number of cards in <laughs> someone's hand. And if you don't have to do that, don't do that. And, and you can either, you know, just get maybe better at keeping an eye on how many cards are in someone's hand if you are holding something that cares about it or do the opposite and just ask for that information frequently enough that when it actually does matter, it seems like it's meaningless. And, and the other situation where that comes up is graveyards. 
Joey's attention just perked up. Well, there, there's so many times <laughs> someone's like, can I see what's in your graveyard? And that just means they're going to do something that cares about cards in my graveyard, or they're looking for something to reanimate. Um, and I've held up Scavenger Grounds mana because someone's asked that question when normally I wouldn't have done so that turn. I had mm. plans, and I and they asked, and I'm like, I'm just going to make sure for the next two or three turns I keep Scavenger Grounds mana available. They go to make a move, and then I can stop it. Or they don't make a move because I have Scavenger Grounds. And if they had just done a better job hiding that information from me, I wouldn't have done that. I love that, Dana. That's delightfully devious of you. Well, and, and then the opposite of that is maybe you want to do that if someone has a scavenger grounds out to force them to leave mana up. That That's something you can do psychologically as well. Ask to see someone in someone's graveyard and maybe they will keep mana available <laughs> and not make a, a play and you've essentially taxed them. I love that. That's hilarious. But also stay away from my graveyards. Who are you? Kunaros? <laughs> Not okay. Bad dog. Uh, there's there's one more thing. You had mentioned, you know, taking advantage of something psychologically. And I actually think that here's another bonus lesson that I'm going to kind of throw in is not just taking advantage of the psychology of your opponents, but also potentially taking advantage of the psychology of yourself. So what I mean by that is like little tricks like putting a dice on top of your deck to help you remember your Sylvan library trigger at the beginning of your turn. Tiny things like that. It's sort of acknowledge acknowledging your own habits so that you don't miss out on something. A weird one that I have personally used, and I know this is going to sound weird and it's not related to magic at all, but it is just a small life improvement. I personally take off my wedding ring about an hour or so before I plan on going to the gym to make sure that I do that. The reason that I do this is because I don't want my wedding ring up against weights and metal like that. I don't want it to get scratched, but I also don't like the feeling of not wearing my wedding ring. It makes me uncomfortable. And I'm sort of using my own discomfort to make sure that I will go to the gym so that I don't miss out on those gains, that I don't miss out on that value. It's just a <laughs> tiny thing, but it's actually made a sort of a psychological onus that I'll sort of be able to hold myself accountable to that rather than saying, ah, I'll just skip it this time. There's a, a small way that I'm sort of trying to take advantage of my own psychology. And that's something you can totally do in Magic too by sort of taking advantage of little things here, maybe even writing something down to help you remember it or putting dice on top of your deck. Little things like that can also help you out by, you know, acknowledging the way that your own brain works to give you some extra gains there. Joey, I really like that. And to build on that, something that I've started doing, because I totally do the dice thing. I totally will put a dice on top of my library to remind myself during the upkeep. But any upkeep triggers that I have, if it's a card on the battlefield, I'll just slide it over and I'll put it right next to, to my library. That way I'm looking at my library, see the dice, and I can just look right next to my library and I see all the different triggers that I might have to worry about. Okay, did this happen? Did this happen? Do I have to worry about this trigger? That way I'm not trying to scan and, and process my entire battlefield all at once. If it's something that is going to have any sort of upkeep trigger or something that's going to happen towards the beginning of, the, of any given turn, I look at it and it's right next to my library. Everything's centralized. So I kind of, yes, I have my battlefield lands in the back because I'm not a psycho. I don't ever put <laughs> lands in front, but lands in back, anything that I have to worry about triggering that I need to remember that goes next to the library. Then the battlefield with the creatures that's off to the side as well. So just making sure you set yourself up and do all these little things. Dana challenged himself last week to do all these little things to maybe get better in the margins. Oh, weird. It's almost like that's your article series. <laughs> but it's just doing all these little things that are just going to help set yourself up to remember all your triggers because the more triggers you remember, more likely the more benefit you're going to get out of them. So doing all those little things, whatever helps you remember, that's what you should be doing. 
I absolutely love that. Even just positioning where things are on the battlefield can make a huge difference on the way that you play around them. That's a great point. Anything to help you remember your own Ristic study triggers, right? And hey, here's another bonus bonus, I guess. Sovereigns of Lost Alara has flying people. Like, just because it looks like it flies doesn't mean it necessarily does. Don't forget to read cards. Reading cards explains the card. It's a valuable lesson. Joey's yelling at a cloud again. Anyway, let's move on to our closing segment, and that is challenging some stats. There's a lot of data here on Trek, but we don't always agree with it. Sometimes we think that cards are seeing more play than they deserve. Sometimes we think that cards are seeing less play than they deserve. So I'm going to pass it off to you, Dana. What is your challenge this week? My challenge is a card in just over 500 decks, and I think it should be in more. It's Crackdown from Arcadian Masks. It's two and a white for an enchantment that simply says, non-white creatures with power three or greater don't untap during their controller's untap steps. And if you are playing a mono-white deck, that never ever affects you, and it affects a whole bunch of other people's decks and just basically locks down their non-white creatures. When did you become a stacks player? <laughs> well, see, you know, it affects everyone. It's equal. So um, you just happen to be playing only white creatures. Man, that's mean. And it's also really good. I had mentioned Arcades earlier. That's probably another tool that, you know, defender decks that basically never exactly. have creatures with power three or greater yeah. can use to keep things locked down. Man, that's a... Uh... That's really vicious, Dana. I, I, I always knew you had it in you. You're, you're a terrible, terrible <laughs> person, and we love you for it. Matt, what is your Thanks. challenge? Thanks, man. So, Joey, you like playing black decks, right? Uh, always. Always? What is a, a land that's generally good in black decks? A swamp. A swamp? Well, that, that's good. What what land makes everything a swamp? Uh, Urborg. Urborg, Ur which is lovely with Cabal Coffers, might I add. It is. Well, I'm not going to go Cabal Coffers level, but I'm going to go a little bit different. So in Urborg, Tomb of Yawgmoth decks, it's a land, legendary land, that just makes all land swamps in addition to whatever else they're doing. There's a card in Modern Horizons that I forgot about that also loves Urborg, Tomb of Yawgmoth. It's called Defile. It is one black for an instant. Target creature gets minus one, minus one until end of turn for each swamp you control. So this card is only in 1,660 decks right now, but it is not showing up on Urborg's page at all, and I think that is a little wrong. It's just such a good, efficient one black mana, and it's going to scale along as the game progresses. So if you have five lands in and you have Urborg out, it's going to minus five, minus five something, but as the creatures get bigger and the game progresses, Defile gets better and better. It gets bigger and bigger, so you can take out the bigger creatures the longer the game goes. I think it's something that it should be showing up if you're playing Urborg Tomb of Yawgmoth and you need kind of a Path to Exile, Swords to Plowshares type of just very cheap, efficient card that's going to scale in how well it removes creatures. I think Defile is a perfect addition. Minus can make a really big difference, especially when people are playing around with mm -hmm. indestructible effects. Yep. Folks have gotten me with a good tragic slip here and there too, so having another one mana option that can use minus instead of destruction can be indeed devastating. Yeah, I mean, most of the time in mono black, you tend to be running a lot of swamps anyway, in part because there's a ton of things in black that care about swamps or double the amount of mana your swamps produce. So mono black decks just in general tend to want to run a lot of swamps. And it does kind of scale with your needs. I mean, yes, on turn one, you can only cast it to give a creature 1-1, one, one, but most of the creatures that you would care about removing on turn one tend to be 1-1s, one, whether it's Noble Hierarch or Birds of Paradise or something. And as, you know, your opponent's abilities to cast bigger creatures go up, 
the amount of minuses that Defile puts on a creature goes up with it. So, I mean, it scales with your needs kind of as well. It's a really good card. And if I was playing Mono Black, I would have a really tough time not running it, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a definitely an interesting one. If my Conrad deck didn't have to be so creature-based, I would definitely want to give this one a try. As it is, I need to keep that particular deck very, very creature-based. But I do like this pick, especially for some of the other folks out there in, in Mono Black. We are going to move on now to my challenge. This is a pretty strange one, particularly because Matt picked a black card, which is usually my purview, and I'm picking a green card in a Naya commander Ooh. deck, which is usually Matt's purview. Do Who tell. Are we in? Yeah, when did we Freaky Friday switch on each other? Anyway, I'm looking specifically for the commander Marisi Breaker of the Coil. This is the four mana five four that says whenever one of your creatures damages an opponent, you goad all of that player's creatures. The card that I'm looking at that I think would be really stellar in Marisi, and by me saying I think that it would be really stellar in Marisi, I mean someone used it against me and it was devastating. <laughs> this is the card Rampage of the Clans. I don't usually like this card, but for Marisi, there's some really cool applications. Rap Rampage of the Clans is a four mana green instant that says to destroy all artifacts and enchantments, and for each permanent destroyed this way, its controller creates a 3-3 green centaur creature token. Only 15% of Marisi decks are currently playing this card, but I think that it could be more, because usually you don't want to give your opponents creatures, right? Well, when you're goading those creatures, it's actually a lot better. And what a player was able to do against me with Rampage of the Clans was attack with just one of their random creatures, even a creature with shadow to make sure that I just absolutely couldn't block it while they had Marisi in play. And I'm like, okay, well, no blocks. I have to let this creature through. And then before damage was dealt, they instant speed played the Rampage of the Clans to get rid of all of my mana rocks, turn them into centaurs that then, as soon as I was dealt damage, were immediately goaded on the next turn, allowing them to force me to deal even more damage to another opponent. It was absolutely backbreaking, and I think that it would be another cool thing that more Marisi deck players would be able to use in the future. See, this is the type of politics I can get behind, where you punch somebody in the mouth and then say, <laughs> yep. they did it, and you make them punch somebody else. I can get into that. It's combat. I, I dig it. That's a good pick. <laughs> you just like it because it's a green card, Matt. That, that's besides <laughs> the point, but you're also right. <laughs> Alrighty, do we have any final tips, final pearls of wisdom, final minor upgrades that we'd be able to uh, leave off with or observations about these upgrades uh, before we close our show out? Anything else that you guys want to leave off with before we go? I would just say in general, whatever you do in Commander, do it with intent. Whatever you're doing, whether it's, you know, tap the mana you're playing or the, the sequencing of the spells you play, understand why you're doing the thing you're doing the way you're doing it. Yeah, a lot of these tiny things can really be what actually adds up to achieving those resolutions to, you know, getting the most value. It can sometimes be hidden in the finer details, so it's always good to be very attentive to them. I absolutely love it. But with that, I think we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-host so much for joining me. And if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Matt? You can find me on Twitter at Mathemus55, M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And Dana. You can find me on Twitter at Dana Roach and hear me twice a week on my other podcast, CMDR Central. 
And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. Special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Peddle, also known as Kenish Norn. You can follow him on Twitter at Loader. That's L-O-A-D-3-R. You can follow Idiotrek and the cast on Facebook and Twitter, and you can contact us at idiotrekcast at gmail.com. Plus, you can find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast as well. This podcast is posted every week on Idiotrek's community content spotlight section, where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles, public published every day by our own fantastic team of writers. Listeners, let us know what your tips and tricks are to help achieve your resolutions and what are some of your methods of finding little bits of value that can add up over a long game. Let us know. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. Wreck your deck.